Again, that's Titus chapter 3, verse 1 to 8. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to God's work. These things are excellent and profitable for people. This is God's word. I read this and I immediately think Paul must have been a really, really good Bible study leader. Most of you here, uh, I think, probably have participated at some point in a Bible study, uh, a small group or a community group. But if you haven't, participated in a small group of people who gather together to start applying God's Word to their life, I encourage you to hop on our website, sunrise.ky. You can find out more about community groups that exist uh, in our community and meet throughout the area. First impressions when you go to one usually begin around the time you crack open the Bible. And once you do so, your experience in a Bible study or in a community group or whatever can go either way. It usually or often depend upon your leader. Sometimes a Bible study leader, and God bless them, they can be an oversharer. Someone who, uh, with every point that is made, they can relate to it. Uh, they sit and they talk about stories about often involved, involving their pets and various things going on in their lives. Or they just are so uncomfortable with silence, they answer every question that they ask you almost immediately. And God bless them, sometimes you get an overshare as a leader. Or you can be like myself, who is a Bible nerd. And some of us who are Bible nerds, it's great to be a Bible nerd. They don't know when to turn the off position on the Bible nerdity. All right? and, and, and so they're talking about fun facts of the Bible. And at first it's interesting, but then you begin to wonder to yourself, I don't understand how Paul's upbringing under the tutelage of the scholar Gamaliel, has to do with the conflict I'm dealing with at work, or how to love a neighbor who's difficult to love. But every once in a while, and of course here at Sunrise, you'll find a very skillful Bible study leader. All of seven of our community group leaders are skillful Bible study leaders. And a skillful Bible study leader sets the truth on the table. And then they suggest ways that that truth might apply to specific situations in your life. And then they gently point to the power we have in Jesus Christ to help you live out what's actually learned in a Bible study. That's what a good Bible study leader does, and that's what the Apostle Paul does in our passage today as a Bible study leader par excellence. He reviews some truths with with a Christian. But rather than leave Titus and the church with a bunch of to-do lists, a laundry list of how to be submissive, just speak evil of no one, be gentle, show perfect courtesy, in other words, be thoughtful, Paul gets more personal. 
He doesn't stop there with that laundry list. And that's what a good Bible study leader does. They, they would say, okay, be thoughtful, be courteous, show perfect courtesy, be submissive, speak evil of no one. Now, who in your life is tough to do this towards? Who in your life do you find it difficult to humbly love in this way? That's what a good Bible study leader would do. And that's what Paul does here. He reminds them of stuff they already know. Then he drills down to have them look at their life and apply it. So he makes perfect courtesy, submissive, relevant. Then he points them to the power to actually live that out in their life. So Titus could walk away saying, man, I, I can actually help my people in my church apply this to their life and point them to the person who can help them live it out. So if you're just joining us, Titus, he's living on this island called Crete. He's been left behind by Paul to help grow the church that they've started there. And during their time on Crete, Paul could describe the culture of Crete with three eyes. Individualistic, immoral, and indulgent. In fact, Paul says as much in Titus chapter 1. We read about this. He said, a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And then Paul concludes by saying, this testimony is true. All right, so a little bit of an ouch. So it would have been understandable if he said that for Paul to say, look, Titus, I've left you behind there in Crete. Do what you can. Do what you can with this church, but after all, it's Crete. And yet, Paul expects the gospel to transform every kind of person, no matter where they're from, or no matter how they were brought up, say. All right? He expects transformation of the gospel to happen in their lives. In chapter 2, Paul explains how the gospel, the good news about Jesus, transforms relationships and community in the church. And in chapter 3, though, he, he moves on to how the good news about Jesus can transform our relationships in society, outside the church, outside these walls. As that's what we're looking at this morning. He believes so much in the power of the gospel, Paul uses the example of society's most frustrating segment to deal with. Now, I don't know a lot of people working in government, but I reached out to a handful of people I do know, and one of the questions I asked them is, to what extent have you experienced cynicism as a government employee? People who look cynically at you and your job, and nearly all of them said they experience this regularly. One person said that, I feel we're branded in government as lazy workers with a cushy job. Another gentleman had families who constantly expressed to him, quote, they need you to vote, and once they do, you don't see them again until the next election. Speaking of political candidates and political figures. And he followed by saying, sadly, as a government, I feel we prove this is true. Now, I never really asked anyone in government this question. How people feel about you? And do you generally have people looking down on you? But clearly, these government workers, all of them across the board, felt the weight of the cynicism of our society looking in on them. So imagine if such people experienced a wholly different set of attitudes and actions, something, something fresh, something full of love and grace, perfect courtesy, a submissive and appreciative spirit, gentleness, citizens and residents willing to pitch in with every good work, as Paul says it. Imagine the difference that could make in their life. There would be an openness, like, this is different. These people are different in the way they're treating me. Now Paul basically says, how are you going to live out this whole different set of attitudes and actions 
towards such people. And this is the focus of Paul's passage. And I'm not telling you anything you can't see right here in our passage. Right? In verse 1, he says, I'm going to remind you of some things you already know. But when we get to verse 8, he's saying, the things I've just talked about, you need to insist on them. They are, they are trustworthy. This is to be believed. It's profitable. Paul is saying in every way he can, this is what I need to emphasize. This is what I need to point to. There is power in what I've just said. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning in verses 3 through 7. And we're going to see one of the most powerful run-on sentences in the entire Bible. We're going to see how Paul shares why our attitude can be different. How our actions should be different. And evidence that proves that we as Christians are most certainly different. And God has done so much work in us as believers in Jesus that we should be at the point where people would say, man, what's got into you? What's got into you? How are you different? So let's talk first about why our attitude needs to be different towards people that are sometimes frustrating. And the reason is is that mercy has been shown to us. And we see that, first of all, starting in verse 3. Read that with me if you would. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, led to various passions and pleasures, passing our malice, envy, being hated, hating one another. Paul has each person who's already decided to trust Jesus walk down memory lane together. And so that's what we do. And it's not necessarily a fun walk, is it? First of all, he says, all of us were once foolish. A fool is someone who, according to Psalm 14.1, says in his heart, There is no God. And it's not always an atheist who says this, a staunch atheist. It could be someone who just lives their life as if God didn't exist. Even though they say, yeah, but I'm religious, or I'm a Christian, or I'm spiritual. And so, as a result, they are disobedient consistently to God, as our verse says here. Paul explains that the state is something for which we're both responsible and victims. We're responsible, right? He says we are foolish and disobedient, but we're also victims. We're deceived and enslaved. So as we choose to sin more, sin enslaves us more, and and Satan's influence over us grows. And Paul is just trying to paint a portrait here of helplessness. So through our own actions and through what sin and Satan does to us, we are left helpless. We've got ourselves into this, and it's reinforced. Paul then gives a couple examples how deep the rabbit hole goes. He talks about malice and envy, and this is the way we live our lives. Malice is hoping bad things happen to people, and envy is hoping no good things happen to people. But then something happens. The goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appears, and He saves. He saves any and all who would trust in Jesus. Everything Jesus did on our behalf, living the perfect life we can never live up to, dying the death we deserve, being resurrected to life and ascending to heaven so that we can one day follow in his footsteps and be with him forever. All of that appears. God opens our eyes. It's as if one day we didn't see what was true. And the Holy Spirit opens our eyes and we see, oh my gosh, I really do need Jesus. I really do need a rescuer. I need a Savior in my life. Have you guys ever uh, done one of those pros and cons lists before when you're making a big decision? Maybe you're going to move or you have a job you're deciding on, or maybe you're in a relationship and you're wondering if you should take the next step forward. And you get a piece of paper out and you draw on it the pros and the cons in two columns, right? Imagine if God was doing that with us. This passage gives us a little bit of an insight into this. God's pros and cons list, whether to, to save us or not. In the con list, in the con column, you have foolish. 
These people are disobedient. They're deceived. They're enslaved. They're being hated, hated, but hating one another. They're full of hate, and they're just a hot mess. In the pro column, what do we have, though? What does our passage say? What's in the pro column? Actually, nothing. Nothing is in the pro column. And Paul anticipates that we might come up with something, a late entry. Works done by us in righteousness, verse 4 says. And so we might say, well, but with God, there are good things I have done. But if we look back at the reasons why we did those things, rarely do we do things for other people purely with a pure motive. And oftentimes, we do things for other people because it makes us feel good. Because we want to have a relationship with them. We want things to go well for them, but so that we could feel, you know, kind of good about ourselves. And so we look back, there's a lot of I in that, isn't there? There's a lot of me, me, me. And we realize that even when we do a lot of good things in our lives, it's out of the wrong motive. But thankfully God has a solution. Written over his decision, written over his columns, is one word, and that is mercy. That trumps everything like we were saying about earlier. Mercy triumphs over any other judgment. And that determines how he's going to act towards us. He's going to save us anyway, despite that long list of cons that we have going against us. Now, no one likes to walk down memory lane, especially when that lane smells of some strange sewer smell and has roadkill all over it. And that's what verse 3 looks like here. It's tough to read that and think, wait a minute, is that how God used to see me? And the answer is yes. But the reason we need to think about that As a wise Puritan named Thomas Watson once said, until sin be bitter, Christ cannot be sweet. Until we see the bitterness of the way our lives used to be, Christ can't be sweet, and neither can our attitude towards other people. Have you guys ever combed through an album of photographs with someone you love, whether it's a spouse or a friend or your, your mom who brings it out? Maybe it's a digital photograph now, I don't know, digital album. Katie and I pretty much never do that. And full disclosure, we don't ever really get out the, the album. Maybe you do. And maybe when you look back on your past, there's some fairly incriminating photos. That perm or hairstyle you really regret. The 1980s leggings that you saw and you're thinking to yourself, why did I put those on? Or the whitewashed jeans you know, that you wore and thought you were pretty cool with your flat top haircut. Maybe these are things that you regret. And reading, I was reading a book not too long ago and, and a picture, an old picture fell out of the book. And it was a really, really old picture. I clearly used it as a bookmark a long time ago. And it was this picture. This picture of me at summer camp. And I actually, thankfully, this is not even the worst picture I could have chosen. Uh, I had, yes, did I have war paint and orange hair? I did. And uh, if you look a little closer, it looks even worse. And Katie took one look and she said, wow, I am glad you no longer look like a ginger braveheart. And when I look at that picture, I not only see how bad I looked, but I also see immaturity in my life. I see misplaced hopes. I see some bitterness that was still going on in my heart. And though it may may make us cringe to look at an old photo, it makes you also profoundly grateful, doesn't it, for where you are now. But also profoundly understanding, tender, non-judgmental for those who are stuck in a stage like that a stage that you experienced in your past. Sometimes I get bothered by my eldest son. I love my kids. They're great kids, Mason and Gage, 11 and 9 years old. Sometimes I get bothered. My eldest son likes to grow his hair out over his eyes. I've become that person, by the way. 
Get your hair out of your eyes. Get off my lawn. I'm becoming that father. And I'm sure I'll become that grandfather as well. But I get bothered. He grows his hair over his, his, his eyes. And then my youngest son, he makes uh, fashion purchases, which are highly suspect. This summer, he's already bought two or three t-shirts with cats on them. And with this hard-earned money, and I just see them, and I'm like, okay, I totally support you. I've got to say that. But then I look at a picture like that, and I'm softened. I'm like, wait a minute. I have no room to judge. I understand. There are some frustrating people who are hard to love. But if we look back at the photograph of our life, how we used to be before Jesus, we can understand, can't we? We can, we can sympathize. And if you don't see it in your life, if you don't see the, the foolishness, the disobedience, the hate that used to be in your heart before Jesus, look deeper. Paul doesn't exclude anyone, does he? He says, we were once foolish. All of us. He doesn't exclude anyone, but neither will God exclude anyone who comes to his son. He will give every person who comes to him mercy. So first we see how our attitude can be different. We also see how our actions can be different. Specifically, the Holy Spirit has gotten into me. Look at verses 5 and 6. He talks about this, how he saves us by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus our Savior. So the Holy Spirit washes us. He washes our record clean, and he washes our conscience clean, which is a glorious thing. But he does more than that. He regenerates us. And this word, it's a gnarly word in the Greek, polygenesia. And it's a word that comes from polis, which means again. And genesia, like Genesis, beginning. So beginning again. You get to completely begin again when the Holy Spirit comes inside of you. It's used only one other time in the entire Bible by Jesus himself. Matthew 19, 28. Jesus says to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you shall also sit upon the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. In the regeneration, in other words, when God makes all things new, and all commentators I read agree that this is not a coincidence, Paul is referring back to this teaching of Jesus. And he's basically saying this without getting into all the logic of it. God has decided that his new world order will begin with you as a new person. What a privilege that is, right? The Holy Spirit has done something in your life to make you the signpost that God one day wants to make all things new. And he's beginning with you. What an incredible privilege. The Bible says the rest of creation is, is groaning and waiting on you. His first regenerated, his first redeemed. And not only does the Holy Spirit enter into our lives and regenerate us, he richly regenerates us, right? Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus. And the best way to understand this idea of the Holy Spirit being poured out into our lives is to contrast it with what used to be poured out into our lives. It's this thing called the doctrine of total depravity. The Bible talks about our sin and our rebellion in our life. And the way a lot of theologians summarize it is by this thing called depravity, total depravity. And total depravity states that we human beings aren't as bad as we could be, but that sin affects every area of our lives. No part of us goes untouched by sin. Whereas when Jesus comes into our life, when the Holy Spirit enters into our lives and regenerates us, it means that we're not as holy as we could be, but that the divine touches every part of our lives. There's no part of our lives that have not touched by God. Our will, our emotions, our attitudes, our desires start to change. And that was just right, a, a, an amazing privilege. 
Right? That means that when we encounter people, every part of us is coursing with the Holy Spirit inside of us. When we want to love people who are unlovable, we have every opportunity to do so because the Holy Spirit dwells in our attitudes, our thoughts, our actions, every part of us. It's also a tremendous responsibility, right? That means you bring God into every situation. It means there's no arena of your life. You can't say, okay, God, keep out of this area. You know, when I go out on Friday night, keep out of that area. Or when I make this decision, which is really all about me, I just, can you just stay out? So it's both a privilege and an incredible responsibility. This week, past week, I did something new. Now, I know when you look at your pastor, you think, I bet he's a closet handyman. Just a, just a behind-the-scenes, do-it-yourself guy. You probably don't think that. Um, there's good reason for it. Uh, but this last week, I, for the first time ever, changed my own oil in my own vehicle. Thank you. There was one. There was one. Thank you, James. I appreciate you starting that. Um, it's a little embarrassing, but I took four quarts of Napa Auto's finest and uh, with the help of a friend's air compression tools, drained the oil, removed the old filter, put on the new, and poured in quart after quart of new oil. And I found pouring in quart after quart of this fresh oil very satisfying because you're not pouring in just enough oil or barely enough oil. It's more than enough to lubricate every part of the engine. The bearings, the pistons, the valve training. Yes, I had to research all of that to know what I was talking about. And, and it coats all of it to prevent metal-to-metal contact, which would grind everything in the engine to a halt. Such, guys, is the initial and continual lubrication poured into our lives by the Holy Spirit for all who have trusted Jesus. Without the Holy Spirit, everything grinds to a halt. But thankfully, he coats every part of our lives to, to live as we created is you actually can do the perfectly courteous thing you intended to do. Your conscience works right, helping you avoid quarreling or turning back to God and asking for forgiveness when you do so. Your desires expand beyond what's just best for you into wanting to glorify God with all that you do. Yet, despite all this, despite showing you that you've been saved by grace and that the Holy Spirit is coursing through your veins, affecting every part of your life, and if this is true for any and all who trust Jesus, some of you will look at your life and you're going to doubt. You're going to say, well, maybe this, what I just read, what Paul says, is true for other people, but it's not true for me. Maybe you still struggle with malice and envy. Maybe instead of gratitude for what God has done, you just feel emptiness and drabness in your life. Maybe you doubt that the Holy Spirit has regenerated anything inside of you. And for you, Paul put in this final line in verse 7, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Paul concludes with evidence that proves we are certainly different. So we should be different, we can be different, and we are most certainly different. It's interesting, if your parents, let's say, were ending the near, near the end of their lives, and years ago they communicated to you, they wished to bequeath to you their home, the home in which you grew up in, the home where you shared memories with many of your siblings. And they told you they wanted to give you this home when they passed away so you could share it with your kids one day. It seems like ages ago when they said it. So how can you be sure, really sure, that you would inherit the home? You probably want to see a couple things, right? Maybe they'd be gracious enough to show you their will, the notarized will, and say, here it is, an ink. We are giving you this home. Or maybe you have it on video, like those videos people show you know, after they, they die, which never really happens, where someone gets on the video and says, I give to Sally my home, right? That would be proof, proof we would seek. Paul 
chooses the strongest form of proof in Roman and in Jewish societies evidence to prove that all who have trusted Jesus can be certain of their salvation, certain that the Holy Spirit dwells in all of their life. He uses these words, this word called justified. Look at that in verse 7. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs. This is a forensic term used by magistrates in a Roman court system to declare innocent someone who was brought before trial. The people who grew up on the island of Crete, where this takes place, they were used to religious, a religious environment of mystery cults and religion. And these mystery cults taught that the way you actually unify with the divine, that you could be sure of salvation, was you would have a vision of God. You would have a vision of the divine. So you can imagine how much pressure that would put on you, right? I've got to have a vision. And when they became Christians, you can imagine they might think, well, wait a minute, am I going to see God one day? Am I going to experience something? Should I have experienced something? And they're full of doubt. Paul takes them out of the out of the realm of religion and brings them into the courtroom to say, look, you have been justified. God has declared you innocent in the same way that a judge would in court. It is signed, it is sealed, it is delivered. You are justified. Jesus raised his hand, came to your defense, and he took the place among the guilty so you might become and declared innocent. But not only justified, you're also heirs. There's hardly anything more certain to a Hebrew child than the inheritance he would get from his mom and dad. It was written in the law, the Old Testament law, especially the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy, go to great pains to say that you don't get more from your mom and dad based on how much they liked you or how much even need you have compared to your brothers and sisters. It was completely written in the law. The eldest son received a double portion and the others got an equal share. You couldn't divvy out your inheritance either any other way. So if you were an heir, you would be certain of exactly what you were going to receive. And such is the case for all who trust Jesus. That's why Paul says you're an heir. You know exactly what you're going to receive. So not only have you been declared right before God, declared just as in a court of law, you're also an heir. You know exactly what you're going to get. You're going to inherit, the Bible says, the kingdom of God, the earth, salvation, glory, and one day an incorruptible body. This is yours for certain. Paul, you see, I just want you to see this, that Paul chooses the strongest pieces of evidence available in that society to say, no matter how you feel or how many times you mess up, you are included on the right side of eternal life if you trusted Jesus. You do have God living inside of you, the Holy Spirit, dwelling through every part of your life, affecting every interaction you have with other people. Now, if you're not sure that you've personally decided to trust Jesus with your life, if you're not sure about that, you can do so now. God's not worried about when exactly you did it. If you feel you have it, if you doubt what you have, you can trust him now. Jesus says in John 6.37 that he will not turn away any who come to him. And you could come to him this morning. Be declared right before God and have God come and live inside of you forever. Which means your attitude and your actions towards society's most frustrating can finally be different. You can finally love the way you've always wanted to love. As we saw, Paul's foremost example of those with whom society finds most difficult to live with is government. But think about how your attitude towards our government and those who serve in our government can be different. In place of cynicism, we can provide prayer. As Irwin did it earlier. And as Paul suggests, make prayers on behalf of kings and those in authority 
1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2. In place of mumbling skepticism, a word of appreciation. I was over by Spots Beach where uh, I lived the other day on my day off. And there was people from government, from the Department of Health. They were, they were working on just tidying up the place. And one person was working and four were sitting on the truck. And I want to be honest with you. Normally I see that and I'm cynical. I think, oh man, come on. Instead of giving them the benefit of the doubt, maybe they've been working the last two hours and they're just taking a water break. So I decided, what about a word of appreciation, Ryan? So I sat there and told them, guys, I just really appreciate the work you do. Thanks so much for working, working for us and making this place more, more beautiful. And I just read this passage, but that's the kind of thing that God can do in you because you've been made right with him. You've been saved. You've been brought from death to life, and you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. In place of indifference, there's understanding, taking the time to find out what someone else does. In place of apathy, investigate the issues that are affecting this island. I asked these government workers also, what are some issues you wish people knew more about? People mentioned the one man, one vote thing, how that's going to affect. People mentioned how welfare works and how the system of foster care works. Do people know about that? Take time to read up about it. Even if you're not a citizen here, even if you're only planning on being here a year and a half because that's your contract, care enough. In place of complacency, partnership. Church is not looking for a handout from government, but asking how we can lend a hand up to government and helping them serve the society we both want to love. In place of complaining, affirmation. Being careful not to roll our eyes and join in the moan every time people complain about government. There's a place for disagreement, but amongst friends, there also ought to be affirmation for the protection that our police officers give. Acknowledgement of the high demands of justice in gray area court cases. Appreciation for all the labor that goes into legislation to make our island a better place. Now this morning, you're not going to walk out of here transformed by some pep talk I'm giving you or some pep talk you tell yourself saying, you know what, I'm going to be different. I'm going to be less cynical. I'm going to care for people that I'm normally cynical towards. You can be transformed. You can be changed by what's gotten into you. If you trust Jesus, grace has appeared and covered your life when you deserve none. And God himself, the Holy Spirit, courses through every part of your being, mind, body, soul, attitude, desires, making every part of you new and, and meditating on these truths, as Paul himself concludes, is excellent and profitable for people. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word this morning. We thank you that you've given us government to watch over us, to protect us. Even though sometimes, Lord, we get frustrated with them. As there are other people in our lives we get frustrated with. And one of the beautiful things you tell us, one of the beautiful truths, is it's, it's not going to be through our own effort, our own determination, through pep talks we hear today or we tell ourselves. It's going to be through actual power. It's going to be through actually looking back at our lives and the way we used to be, looking back at that old photograph, remembering where we were and how far you've brought us, and thus having understanding and gentleness and courteousness towards others. And it's going to be because of the Holy Spirit, you have come into our lives. And we would ask that you would fill us even more in our lives, Lord, that we might know that we belong to you. More than that, we might be able to love the way you called us to love, even towards people who frustrate us. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.